Welcome back to The Build Podcast. I'm Arielle, your host, and I'm really excited to have Rahul Vora from Superhuman here with us today. So Rahul, thank you for joining us and taking time to chat about designing products that people love. And maybe to start, I think most folks have familiarity with Superhuman, but for those who don't, you want to give the quick background on uh, what Superhuman does? Sure. So Superhuman is the fastest email experience in the world. We've built it so that our customers get through their inbox twice as fast as before, and many of them see inbox zero for the first time in years, which, uh, as you can imagine, is pretty life-changing. That sounds amazing. I would love to see inbox zero. I cannot say I'm anywhere close to that, but (laughs) sounds like an awesome product. So in terms of of you specifically, we want to talk about building products that people love and Superhuman is certainly one of those, but you've actually had more experience building products that users have taken to in the past. So maybe for folks who don't know, if you could give a little bit more of your background, that'd be great. Yeah, happy to. So before Superhuman, I started a company that you may recall called Reportive. This was a while ago. This was back in 2010. And we built the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. Uh, And by Gmail plugin, I mean a a browser extension. This was a Chrome extension and a Firefox add-on. And when people emailed you, we showed you what they looked like, where they worked, their recent tweets, and links to their social profiles. Uh, We grew rapidly during that time, and two years in, we were acquired by LinkedIn. And during that period, that four years in total, I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, still not working offline. And on top of that, people were adding these plugins like our own, Reportive, but also Clearbit, Mixpacks, Yesware, Boomerang, you name it, they had it. And each one of those plugins made that Gmail experience worse. So we imagined what it would be like to build the fastest email experience in the world. And that's how we came to Superhuman. I think I told you this when we first met, but I was a power user of power user of Reportive back when I was at Yesware. So that was certainly an awesome product as well. And it sounds like, you know, the learnings from that definitely informed what you guys decided to do with Superhuman and the direction you've taken it in. You're absolutely right. Superhuman is actually everything that we intended to do at Reportive. It's uh, in many ways the same company, but a thousand times bigger, including some of the same people. And so both of these products are what I would would say are products that, you know, people love and and they've also both taken off like wildfire did in their time. And so you know, you mentioned to me that that largely comes down to the way you think about designing products and actually designing, you know, B2B products to be more like uh like game design. And so could you talk a little bit more about what exactly that means? Sure. So superhuman and reportive before it They're productivity software, but I'm really a gamer at heart. Our business software today feels like work. We have to check our email. We have to submit expense reports. We have to enter data in our CRM. But a question I ask myself all the time is what if we could make software less like work and more like play? And I think with game design, I've shown that we can. See, today, most companies, most software companies worry about what users want or what users need. But no one needs a game to exist. There are no requirements per se. So when you make a game, you don't worry about what users want or need. 
Instead, you obsess over how they feel. Because when your product is a game, people don't just use it, they play it. They find it fun, they tell their friends, they fall in love with it. And game design turns out to be an altogether different kind of product development. That's a super interesting way of thinking about B2B software that I'm sure most folks are, are not thinking about when they're designing you know, business software products, especially in the past. But it sort of you know, marries a trend that, that we see in the market, certainly, that we refer to as product-led growth. You know, people call it different things, but really the point is that you're really focusing products on the end user and what people you know, will want to adopt at work. And so you know, thinking from the lens of this is ultimately a person and you know, what motivates them to use a certain product might be different than you know, what would motivate someone to use a product that's getting pushed top down. And therefore, you have to think about designing these products differently. So, so it's a super interesting and different approach from what I've heard from other folks. Absolutely, yeah. So I guess when you say game design, could you talk a little bit more about what that means? Because I've heard of gamification, obviously, and you know, it's something that you know, I, I certainly tested out back when I was a product manager in a number of different respects, um, particularly building products for, for salespeople. But is, is that what you mean by game design or how are you actually defining that? I can talk for days about game design, but it's probably helpful to start with what I imagine many of our listeners are thinking, which is, as you say, is game design gamification. And it absolutely is not. Game design is not gamification. It is not simply taking your product and adding points, levels, trophies, and badges, which is interesting because 10 years ago, gamification was a big deal. But it didn't work. And to understand why, we have to dive deep and, and really get to grips with human motivation. So there's this fascinating research study from the 1970s where researchers from Stanford recruited a bunch of children uh, aged around three to four years old. Now, all of these kids were generally interested in drawing. Some kids were told they'd get a reward, a certificate with a gold seal and a ribbon. Some kids were not told about any reward, so they did not expect one or, or even know of one. And then each child was invited into a separate room to draw for six minutes, and afterwards they would either get the reward or not. And over the next few days, the children were observed to see how much they would continue to draw by themselves. And as it turns out, the children with no reward spent 17% of their time drawing. But the children who expected a reward, they only spent 8% of their time drawing. The reward, in other words, had halved their motivation. So when I read this, I, I was fascinated. I really wanted to understand what was going on there. And researchers differentiate intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. When we play games... We are intrinsically motivated. We do things because they are inherently satisfying and for their own sake. But when we work, we are often extrinsically motivated. We do things to achieve rewards and external goals. And that's the problem with rewards. They massively undermine intrinsic motivation. The more that we are asked to do something, the less in control we feel, the less intrinsically motivated we are. And that fundamentally is why gamification did not and does not work. And when gamification appears to work, it is because the underlying experience is actually already a game. Huh. Yeah, that's definitely a surprising result. I would certainly expect that, you know, all other things equal, 
the students who were offered, you know, a, a prize at the end would have drawn a lot longer. But I guess maybe I, I want to dig more into that sort of intrinsic motivation and why that's so powerful and how you drive that. But before we do, you know, bring it back to software for people to use at work. You know, many of these pieces of software are targeted at helping people do a number of different things or have a bunch of different features and functionality. So yes, for superhuman, maybe as an example, and then you could talk more broadly, how do you actually define what you're trying to motivate a user to do? So you have to take the workflows that a user is doing and distill them down into goals. Goals turn out to be one of the five critical factors that at Superhuman, we consider that's part of our game design philosophy. So there are goals, there's emotions, there's controls, there's toys, and there's flow. Goals are the uh, the first and some of the most important. All games need goals, it turns out. And goals are a defining feature of games. But we can't just have any goals. We need good goals. And for a game, good goals need to be three things. Concrete, achievable, and rewarding. For example, in Superhuman, we set a very concrete goal, get to inbox zero. And then the second thing is that good goals must be achievable. So this is one of the main reasons why we onboard users. For each new user, we do a live concierge onboarding. This is a 30-minute video call one-to-one with our wonderful onboarding specialists. And in this call, we teach faster workflows so you can get to inbox zero, powerful shortcuts so you never have to touch the mouse. And if you're very far away, we'll actually wipe the slate clean so that you're within a stone's throw of inbox zero, thus making the goal more achievable. So we have concrete goals, we have achievable goals. Goals must also be rewarding. And that's why when you hit inbox zero, we show you stunning and gorgeous imagery, photography that changes every day, views that are designed to be serene, peaceful, and inspiring. And if you think about most business software, it actually doesn't have clear goals. And if there are goals, they are often unachievable or unrewarding. So one of the lenses that we use is if you want to build software like it's a game, then you should create goals that are concrete, achievable, and rewarding. And did you guys consider anything? I mean, Inbox Zero seems like an obvious one as you sort of talk through the principles of how to define a goal. But did you consider anything else or was that a pretty obvious one for you all? I think that was a very obvious one for us all. It was both a thing that almost every user dreamed they could achieve. And it also turns out to be an outcome that once you achieve it is extremely emotionally resonant. So the second factor that we consider is emotion. And the emotions associated with Inbox Zero are deep and powerful. They range from pride and triumph through hope and enthusiasm to excitement and accomplishment. Uh, And so on every dimension that we could analyze what would make for a good goal, Inbox Zero turned out to be remarkably sound choice. And maybe just to, because most business software wasn't built around clear goals and with this sort of, you know, game design principles, these game design principles in mind, do you think that this is something that can be used and applied across all types of business software? Or is it something that, that really requires a re-architecting and a rethinking of the purpose behind these pieces of software? I think it depends heavily on the use case. I think that game design works best on software 
that is intended to be used a lot. For example, as you'll know from your Yesware work, there are 1 billion professionals in the world. And on average, we spend three hours a day doing email. So that's 3 billion hours a day that go into email. So if you're working on a daily use case like that, then you have an opportunity to take an experience that feels like work and instead make it feel delightful, amazing, magical, and fundamentally like a game. But if it's not a daily use case, if it's, if it's a thing that people are perhaps doing for two or three minutes at a time, then arguably the upside in making this transition is less impactful. So I would focus on daily use cases. And so I guess with your specific goal of helping people get to inbox zero, how do you actually go about creating or manufacturing intrinsic motivation uh, for that? Is it just picking a goal um, that someone's already intrinsically motivated to complete? Or is there more to it than that on the design side? Good question. So this is the million dollar, if not even billion dollar question. And I think that the best way to create intrinsic motivation is actually to create products that put users into a state of flow. We all colloquially know what flow means. It's when we're in the zone and we're fully immersed in what we're doing. But there is also a huge amount of research behind flow and how to create it. So I think first it's useful to define it, and then we can jump into how do you manufacture it. So flow has six parts to its definition. It's quite a, a rigorously defined thing. Number one, it's an intense and focused concentration on the present. Number two, it's so absorbing that we don't think about the future or worry about the past. Number three, it's so demanding that we don't care what others think about us. Number four, it's so easy that we always know what to do next. Number five, it's so powerful that it alters our subjective experience of time. Time can flash by instantly or stretch out forever. And number six, and this is where it ties into your question, it's so rewarding that activities we do whilst in flow become intrinsically motivating. So then the question is, how do we create flow? And there's five things that the research shows that we need to do in order to create flow states. Number one, we have to know what to do next. If a user doesn't know what to do next, they're going to stop and figure it out and therefore fall out of flow. Number two, we have to know how to do it. Because again, if a user doesn't know how to do a thing, they need to stop and figure out how. Number three, we must be free from distractions because distractions disrupt our focus and flow requires focus. Number four, we must get clear and immediate feedback. If we don't know how well we're doing at a task, it turns out that we quickly lose interest. And if we don't know immediately, chances are we'll lose interest sooner rather than later. And the last part, and this is the hardest of all, we must feel a balance between challenge and skill. Because if, if an activity is too hard, we feel anxious. And if an activity is too easy, we feel bored or relaxed. So to be truly in flow, you have to perceive both the challenge and your own level of skill to be high. And this is quite a subtle point. So I'll use Superhuman as an example here. Superhuman massively increases the skill level for almost everybody. This is one of the purposes of our onboardings. We teach you faster workflows. We show you powerful shortcuts to get to inbox zero. 
But what if your email wasn't that challenging or you were already quite skilled in the first place? Well then, and this is going to sound crazy, we increase the challenge level. We provide a challenging goal, hit inbox zero without ever touching your mouse. This balances high perceived skill, you think you're good at the thing, with high perceived challenge, well, the thing is actually now quite hard. And so it results in that most coveted of mental states, flow. So to design for flow, you may actually have to make the goals of your product harder to achieve. But if you get that right, then you'll be putting users into a state where they're not extrinsically motivated, but they're intrinsically motivated instead. And do you define, as you're sort of working through iterations of the product and continuing to improve it and get more users into flow, do you define you know, a user in flow as someone who's consistently able to complete the ultimate goal? Is it around you know, the time that they're spending in the application? How do you actually know, um, particularly as you get more and more folks on the platform and you're not just interacting with them during these onboarding sessions, whether or not you've actually achieved that goal? Great question. So I don't know if you recall the product market fit article that I wrote last year. This was the engine that we came up with to not only define product market fit, but to measure how much of it you had and even a methodology for systematically increasing it. But as part of that, one of the questions we ask is what is the main benefit you get from superhuman? And this is an open-ended question. People can write out their answer in full sentences. What I always recommend a company or a team do is take those answers, take out the filler words, and throw them into a word cloud. Uh, and at Superhuman, we do this. We make it big, stick it on the wall. It turns out that the biggest word on that word cloud is flow, and the second biggest word is focus, and the third concept is keyboard shortcuts. So even if you're not doing onboardings. And by the way, to this date, we still continue to onboard every single user. But even if you're not doing it, you can use our product market fit engine to get a sense of what the main benefit of the product is. And if flow appears in there, then you know for a fact that you're achieving it. So if users essentially are self-identifying as uh, as being in flow, it's a pretty good way to know that, that you're achieving that goal. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, just as I think about my own workflow you know, and achieving flow, because of course, as you mentioned, you know, everyone sort of heard of this concept and, you know, idealizes it. There's both your experience within a specific application. Um, so perhaps superhuman and, you know, trying to get through my, through my inbox, but then there's also, you know, the distractions of more and more SaaS applications that folks are using in their day-to-day, -day, you know, over time. And so how do you find that you can control someone's flow versus being out of control of the things that they're doing outside of your application? And I guess, how have your learnings from reportive versus superhuman informed that? Because it sounds like you touched on that a little bit earlier, where instead of sort of interacting with a bunch of different plugins, you, you, know, you took over the whole experience. For sure, yeah. So I think I'll take your questions in reverse. The play out of reportive and the general Gmail browser extension mm -hmm. ecosystem was to take a thing that was very heterogeneous, that had any number of companies working on it, no real API framework or extension framework, and to make it 
integrated, minimal, beautiful, and visually gorgeous. That was less about trying to put users into a flow state and more about trying to be the iPhone to what was previously an Android. But there are also product decisions that we have taken that massively increase the likelihood that our users end up in flow state. So you'll remember that the first condition for flow is knowing what to do next. In Gmail, if you archive an email, if you imagine in your mind what happens, you end up back on the inbox, where some things are read, some are unread, some are starred, some will be new and shiny, and you now have to decide what to do next. And you have to do this every single time. And that decision point massively disrupts flow. In Superhuman, when you archive that same email, you automatically advance to the next one. You don't see the inbox at all. You cannot possibly get distracted. So because you don't have to take any decisions, that massively helps flow. And that's an example of knowing what to do next. But that's only one of the conditions. The next condition is knowing how to do it. So as I said, we onboard every user one-to-one. We teach powerful shortcuts so you never had to touch the mouse. But early on, we saw that users would forget these shortcuts. In other words, they knew what they wanted to do, but they did not know how to do it. And so we built superhuman command. You may have seen this. A lot of apps are beginning to copy this. Just hit command K and type in what you want to do. You don't have to know the keyboard shortcuts. It will do it for you, and it will teach you the keyboard shortcut for next time, thus solving for condition number two, which is knowing how to do it. Number three is freedom from distractions. Uh, And those folks who have used Superhuman will know this. In Superhuman, you can only see one conversation at a time. You can't see the inbox at the same time as a conversation, as is the case in almost every other email experience. And so very deliberately, you cannot see what is next or any new email. In other words, the interface itself reduces distraction and so promotes flow. And then the fourth condition is clear and immediate feedback. Uh, Fans of the company will know that the, the core value proposition of Superhuman is speed. And we initially set out to show each new email in 100 milliseconds or less. These days, we've got our renderer down to the point where it can achieve 32 milliseconds or less. And that's pretty obvious. And as I said before, the, the most subtle one and the hardest and actually most counterintuitive one is balancing perceived challenge with perceived skill. I think in so much business software, users perceive their own level of skill to be high, but the challenge to be not that high. Maybe it's a piece of mundane work they're doing or it's time consuming, but it's it's not actually challenging. And so one of the most counterintuitive results of all of this research on flow is how do we make our experiences more challenging than they otherwise are? And in Superhuman, our challenge is get to inbox zero without ever touching the mouse. I love the addition of the challenge because you're right. As as I think through and reflect on this sort of challenge and skill combination, it definitely resonates with you know when you're most engaged and sort of in flow. Um, but I'd never you know thought of it as that you know balance and that being what sort of defines being in flow. So it's interesting to reflect on. 
is one thing you mentioned early on, uh, and then you just mentioned it again, was your onboarding approach, which I think is interesting um, and, and certainly different from a lot of other products. And so it sounds like you guys handhold folks to make sure that you know they really understand the product and know how to use it best so that they can have a successful experience. Is that something that you think is you know broadly the best way to onboard folks to a, to a new product to make sure that they do actually fall in love with it and continue using it? Or what's your philosophy there? I think that if you can afford to do it and the unit economics of the business support it, then yes, absolutely. There is no substitute for a likable expert who's extremely friendly, who's going to listen to you to get you set up in a new system. It's you know impossible for me to imagine anything that could possibly be better than that. In our onboardings, the specialists see how you're doing your email now. They recommend workflow improvements. They show you how to do that workflow, but twice as fast in superhuman. And what we've seen from a metrics perspective is that this dramatically reduces churn, dramatically increases retention, increases NPS, and leaves people with a wonderful, real, authentic human connection to the company. And there have been many cases, actually, where customers have in some way become friends of the company and friends of our onboarding specialists, part of our community, as a result of that genuine human-to-human connection. And how do you find, I know a lot of folks think through their in-app onboarding for people who take that approach or companies that take that approach. And, you know, they'll they'll have trade-offs between actually showing people the right way to use the product and getting into the nitty-gritty, but also minimizing drop-off in that onboarding flow. Do you find that people are pretty willing to get on the phone and sort of sit through that that conversation or at least the right people uh, who are, you know, your ideal customer at the end of the day are, are willing to do that? Yes. And the subtlety is in exactly what you just said. It is the right people. For example, if you are the kind of person who cannot set aside half an hour to jump on a video call to learn some new skills that is immediately going to start saving you hours per week, then you're probably not rationally approaching the value of your time properly. And you probably don't have enough of a growth mindset in order to be successful with the product. And that's okay. It's not for everybody. It is for the people for whom time is at a premium, productivity matters, and who genuinely want to be the best version of who they are, who want to be superhuman. So as for a lot of people listening, you know, some of them are already in the process of building or selling products. They may be selling products that have a daily use case, which you said was the best sort of fit for for this process um, and overall strategy of, of game design. So where would you suggest people start? Is it defining the goal? Um, is it figuring out, you know, how to how to help their users achieve flow? Like what's sort of the actionable uh, next step for people who have never thought about this before? I would say the actionable next step is to consider the five critical factors that we consider. So yes, number one, it's coming up with the goal for your product, a goal that is concrete, achievable, and rewarding. Number two, and this isn't something that we touched too much upon, but it's designing for nuanced emotion. At Superhuman, we design for all kinds of nuanced emotions, and that emotive design is a core part of what makes a game a game. Number three, it's creating a control system 
that is not only rapid as it is for many games, but also extremely robust. If you try to drive business software in the same way that you would drive a video game, most business software would actually break. And at Superhuman, we've done a ton of work so you can drive it as fast and as hard as you might drive a video game. Number four, I would advocate looking into the theory of toys. Toys turn out to be very different to games. Games are things that we play. Toys are things that we play with. For example, baseball is a game, but a ball is a toy. And it turns out that the best games are built out of toys because then the game is fun on multiple levels, the level of the game and of the toy itself. And so there are many toys built into Superhuman and that turns out to be a really good strategy for building games, create toys, and then assemble them into compelling games. And then, of course, the final factor uh, is one that we spent a lot of time discussing, which is this idea of flow. And much has been written about that topic. And to pull all of this together into to one concrete recommendation, I think the best book that I've read on game design, the best introduction to game design is The Art of Game Design. That's a book by Jesse Schell. And he covers these five concepts as well as many, many more. And it's actually recommended reading here at Superhuman. So everyone on the engineering product and design team is given a copy of this when they join the company. Uh, and we, in fact, have named every single conference room in the company after one of the chapters from the book. So it's really built deeply into our culture here at this company. I love that. It's not just sort of a, a one of your tactics or one of your tools in your toolbox around how you guys thinking of, think about designing products, but it's really sort of core to the culture and and the way you guys you know think about building the business. So um, it probably speaks to why why it's been so successful thus far. Exactly. It is literally our product strategy. That's awesome. Cool. Well, Rahul, thank you so much for sharing some of this. I'm sure it's new to, to almost everyone, if not everyone uh, listening. So really appreciate you talking us through it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or really wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce daily content on our blog, and you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time. <laughs>